and welcome to the True Grit Podcast, where we believe that personal growth and helping each other solve important problems is the best way to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Craig Couch, and every week it's my job to interview top performers and unlock the secrets of their success so that you and I can apply some of their thought patterns, daily rituals, and strategies to our own missions. My next guest is Dr. John Kelly owner and founder of Kelly Orthodontics. Dr. Kelly attended Baylor University and received his doctorate in dental surgery from the University of Texas Dental Branch in Houston. He then completed a two-year postgraduate orthodontic residency, which included publication of original research and a Master of Science degree with an emphasis in orthodontics. During his dental school education, Dr. Kelly served as his class president, student council president, and received the Outstanding Senior Dental Student Award, He's a board-certified orthodontist and has served on the cleft palate craniofacial teams at Cook Children's Hospital for over two decades. He and his wife, Allison, moved to Fort Worth in 1999 after wrapping, wrapping up uh, dental school and orthodontic residency. They were newly married, strapped with school debt in a new town where they only knew four people. He joined an existing practice and dove in headfirst to a completely new community. He's been married to Allison for 25 years and has a house full of teenagers. John, welcome to the True Grit Podcast. Oh, thank you, Craig. Thank you for having me. You and I um, have known each other for quite a long time and have become close because we've spent hundreds of hours in the dark on bicycles in what I call the pain cave. Can you describe what the shop ride is? Um, The shop ride is a ride that happens every Thursday, and it usually gets going about 5.40 in the morning as far as the meeting time. And that ride goes out to Alito or Weatherford, depending on the time of the year and what we're training on. And it is the absolute definition of a suffer fest and a pain cave. Um, And almost everybody I know that has done the pain, has done the shop ride through the years was not able to do it the first time. Um, It took me about six weeks of riding that and getting dropped before I could hang on and make it happen. Um, And it's just a relentless pace. Um, And it's, It's the best of both worlds. You go out going west and it's dark and you come back uh, to the east with the sunrise and it is so rewarding um, to make it to the end, um, to make it back to Camp Bowie West in 820. Um, But yeah, it's it's fast. It's hard. Um, It teaches me every week that I don't have problems in my life. Um, I have inconveniences um, because it's amazing when you are strapped for oxygen and your chest is beating as fast as it can, um, the perspective on life. (laughs) That's a great, so you, you know, the metrics off the top of your head, how fast, what are kind of in the core of the ride? What are some of the, the average? Cause I, I know a lot of my listeners aren't cyclists and I've had, uh, I've had some conversations in previous episodes uh, with Elise Dickerson. You know, obviously uh, Claude rode with us uh, for years before he uh, before we moved off to DC. But um, what are the speeds? What are some of the metrics? Because it, it's 
blindingly fast. Yes. Well, like this summer, we got in the habit, and you know, with COVID going on and people having more time, I think, to ride because of work schedules being altered. Um, we ended up riding out to Weatherford. We right by Jerry Chevrolet, if you know where that exit is. Um, and we could ride from 820 at Camp Bowie West out to Weatherford and back. And I think our fastest time this summer was right about um, an hour and eight minutes. Um, so the <laughs> average speed was 25 miles an hour, including stops for red lights. Yeah, including the red light. So you're, we're, you which know, means but the majority of the time you're looking down, if you're not climbing a hill, you're going 27 plus. Right. And lots of times at 30. And so, which, you know, on a bicycle, um, it's pretty exhilarating. Yes. Well, and there's that one spot on the way home where we hit the forties, uh, in some of yes. those downhills. <laughs> so yes. yeah, it's a, it's an incredible ride. And I do remember you, you use the word get dropped. And, and so for, for those listening, what that means is that, uh, and it happened to me multiple times because, uh, John has been riding longer than I have. And, uh, and so I show up to the ride and, 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 you know, just kind of a little bit afraid because of the lore that surrounds the shop ride, uh, and just got dropped, which means that I basically was left in Alito in the dark, uh, to ride home. And, you know, it was kind of, we don't really do that anymore. We kind of have, we kind of have a different system. Um, you guys have a different system now. I, I don't ride that ride uh, much anymore, but, uh, but man, oh man, um, I remember very distinctly time and time again being dropped out there and watching, you know, 10 to 12 guys slowly but surely leave me behind. <laughs> it's the most lonely, just terrible, sh- kind of shameful feeling. Uh, but you know, the, the, incredible feeling of actually hanging on to that ride for the first time. Uh, I remember just thinking, Oh my God, I came home and just was so excited. Uh, and told my whole family, I was like, I, I made it. I, I hung on finally. <laughs> I didn't get dropped. Uh, anyway, so I just, um, I just remember that so much and, uh, such a, such a, I, I was in tip top shape back then. I mean, it was like, uh, uh, I felt like, I mean, my cardiovascular, conditioning was incredible and you've done it for a decade or something how long yeah i started riding um with this group in 2010 so i've been doing it a decade and one of the things that you and i've talked about um that i think your listeners i'm going to brag on you um yeah we do this shop ride differently as far as not leaving people out in the dark because you and i got left out in the dark and that's not a real safe place to be especially as much traffic as there is on access roads so we changed the culture um of our cycling team i feel like in a very positive way of being a lot more friendly and welcoming um instead of the trial by fire and um we'll learn your name if you're able to stay on for a couple of weeks and you keep showing up um <laughs> otherwise you know there was no real interest in who you were and what you were about thankfully that that, that chapter is closed <laughs> well it it was a it was a cool season i've uh I've shown up a couple of times. I feel like I'm more of the team mascot now um, that I don't ride that ride as much anymore. 
Um, well, I'd like to dive into our the, the kind of the core of our conversation um, with a name. And that name is Dr. Richard O'Neill. Who was he and why was he important in your journey as an orthodontist? Um, Dr. Richard O'Neill um, was my mentor. Um, he was the orthodontist whose practice I joined, um, and I had the privilege of practicing with him for um, over three years. And uh, he, Richard grew up here in Fort Worth. He was a Fort Worth guy, grew up on the east side of town, went to Polytechnic High School, um, went on to be an All-American basketball player at TCU, got drafted by the Boston Celtics, realized that he was too small at 6'7 um, to play in the NBA as it was changing because um, guys were just getting bigger down low. And so he decided it was time to pursue a different direction. And so he went back um, and did dental school and did the Army um, before getting out and setting up his practice here in Fort Worth. And so he and Gail, you know, started with um, – a dental practice on the east side of town and they raised four kids and a whole bunch of grandchildren and uh, Richard's midlife crisis was coming home and telling Gail, I'm going to sell my dental practice and I'm going to go back to orthodontic residency school. Um, and they already had, I think, three of their four kids at that point. And Richard being all of six, seven, bought a Datsun 240Z that he drove. He commuted <laughs> from Fort Worth to Dallas and every day going to Baylor College of Dentistry for his residency program for two years. And then came back and set up a ortho practice here in um, Fort Worth in 1975. And then I came and joined him in 99 and just a, a giant of a man um, physically, um, but an even bigger man. Um, spiritually and emotionally for me and just have tried to walk in his footsteps um, through my career and as a, as a husband and a father and orthodontist. So what was the, um, what was the process, the transition of buying him out? I've always been curious about a couple of elements there. Like how do you value uh, how would you put a value on the practice? And then what was the, what was the transition like? Because it sounds like he had a pretty tremendous book of business. I mean, from 75 to, to 1999. So I had an established business. He was, you know, grew up in Fort Worth, was a TCU grad, highly networked. I'm just curious at how that all went down and, and, and what was that like? You know, there are specialists in everything just and so there are specialists that do practice transitions for dental and medical uh, usually the general numbers are anywhere from 50 to 70 percent of gross over a three-year average is what the price comes down to and that then the the percentage is determined by like what you're saying how well is that person establishing the community? What um, what are their goals as far as if they make that transition? Some some doctors want to sell the practice, hand the keys over, and walk out the door. Well, that practice is not going to be as valuable as a practice where the selling doctor is going to stay for a period of time. The technical term for it is goodwill. Um, the reality is 
when you when the senior doctor stays and makes that transition through the selling and then working for um, their new employer, uh, it it goes way beyond the financial aspect. And so, you know, the the neat thing for Richard is um, we had a contract that uh, I worked for him for 12 months and then I bought the practice. There were provisions within that contract that if he didn't fire me for just cause within six months of me being there, he had to sell the practice to me. And if it was one of those things that he felt like he was selling it and he didn't want to be a part of who I was and walked away, the price was reduced. He didn't get 100% of the practice price unless we made it the full 12, 12 months. And, you know, we had a, an incredible relationship and um, I worked for him, like I said, for a year, I bought the practice. He then worked for me um, for another year, which finished up the contract. And then we had a handshake agreement until he retired um, and said, I'm going to Colorado for the month in September, which was his 70th birthday. And he's like, I don't think I want to see patients when I get back. And I was like, awesome. Like you have done this so well, like go enjoy that. And that was really my goal with Richard was, is I wanted him to be able to retire when he was ready to make that transition. Um, and so we didn't have a date until he felt like that was the time. That's really cool. Well, you know, as you were about to take the reins, I'm guessing that there was going to be some shifts in strategy maybe, or shifts in culture or overall vibe or direction. Were there any of those things that you employed right away or, or couldn't wait to begin on um, when the transition happened? I think when you make a transition in a practice, um, it the patients, the parents, and the staff need to feel like the, the changes that are coming are at an appropriate pace. And so I really didn't try to make any changes um, with the staff initially. Um, I made some changes as far as cultural-wise, um, not that what Richard was doing and what I was doing was different, um, but I was younger. And my relationship with patients and parents and referring dentist in the community was going to look different than Richard's relationship. And so I had to um, establish who John Kelly is within the framework of, you know, Kelly Nor and O'Neill orthodontics. And so we started making some of those changes and he was open. I mean, from the very beginning, I mean, even before I bought the practice, he was like, any changes you want to make, let's start making them now. Let's tailor this practice so that it works for you, um, long-term. And so, you know, I've never been to more lunches in the first two years of my practice because Richard introduced me to everybody he knew in town. And so we met and got to know people and started forming friendships and, and went from there. And so, uh, you know, Richard was very gracious to allow me to be a part of all of the decision-making that first um, 12 months. I mean, that's it was so like classy, John. You know, I mean, like that's a, that's such a classy approach, um, to pass the baton and sell your business. And because in a way 
he gets best best of both worlds. He's he's passing it on to someone who he really cares about, and he's also leaving a legacy and giving you space to make it your own. Like that is what a what a great model for you when it's time for you to do the same. Like perfect. Well, and because of the way Richard handled that, there was another orthodontist in town who had immense respect for and really hoped one of my friends was going to be able to come in and buy his practice. And he wasn't ready to sell at that point. And so I just made the offer. I said, you practice as long as you want. If you decide not to sell it to someone coming out of residency, um, I will buy your practice and we'll fold it into my existing and you can practice until you're ready to, to retire. And so we did it again with another orthodontist here in town later on. And that was just, you know, to be able to give that blessing was just huge Mm -hmm. um, because I feel like I've had relationships with two orthodontists who have taught me a lot about life um, and orthodontics and family and to be able to sit under their umbrella, so to speak, um, and have them in the office and bounce ideas off of and have fun with and laugh and camaraderie, a huge blessing for me. And knowing that both of them were able to finish practicing on their timeline with it being their choice and not other factors pressing in. What a beautiful example of finishing strong. Um, orthodontics is, is largely, and just correct me if I'm wrong, is largely elective. And yes. my business mind is going, okay, Craig, if you could be a dentist, your market is big. If you were going to be an orthodontist, the market is smaller. Can you walk me through uh, how you came to the decision of specializing in orthodontics? Because there's a lot of parallels in, in people's uh, business journeys. And do they stay more broad in general to get more market share or, I mean, to, to have a larger market to go after? Or do you, or do you really specialize? Um, so I'd love to hear you walk, walk me through that decision process. You know, I, anybody I mentor, I always say, if you're going to med school or dental school, you need to be content with being a family practice doctor or being a general dentist, even within those realms, you specialize a bit just from the standpoint of you can't be great at everything. Um, and you've got to pick your areas. For me, it probably happened in my third year of dental school and treating clinical patients. And I kept noticing this pattern of seeing patients that were coming back through the dental school and were having to have things like crowns and bridges redone. Um, And I, of course, was looking at them going, um, why don't we fix how their teeth fit together before we fix the res- restorations? They'll last a whole lot longer. And so I was kind of a frustrated third-year dental student going, I think we've got things out of order. And uh, it just went on. And I was like, I enjoyed the restorative dentistry part, but I didn't love it. But I loved creating new smiles, and I loved the opportunity to have a long-term relationship with a patient that you see you know, every five to eight weeks for a year and a half. And so for me, it was two main things playing in. One, from a professional standpoint, I wanted to be able to 
do work at the highest level. And I felt like if I wasn't able to fit the teeth together properly first, then I wasn't giving the patient the best of what they really needed. And secondly, I feel like personality, as you mentioned, plays a big role in it. I knew that I needed feedback from my patients and their parents. I love the fact that in dentistry, we have pediatric dentists. I love the work they do on my patients, what they've done for my kids. But that specialty doesn't work for me because you don't get a whole lot of thank yous from the patients. You get them from the parents. Um, And so each specialty within dentistry has a kind of a unique personality to it as far as the rewards that you um, receive through through the daily taking care of people. Um, day in and day out and over the years. And I love the fact that I saw very early that orthodontics enabled the orthodontist that I knew in my life and that my mentor, who was my orthodontist, showed me was those relationships can be a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, And to get to see them grow up through the teenage years and then go on after high school and then, you know, start a family, start businesses and then come back with their kids for a second generation. That is just that part of orthodontics, the community and the relationship side of it. Just um, that speaks to my heart on a daily basis. Yeah, that is cool. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. I mean, I've I've also I've often thought about you know my dentist and just going to the dentist my whole life, really, and and just the I don't usually leave the dentist office with a smile. <laughs> you know, because it freaking hurts, and it's absolutely just the, the drill and the smell and all the stuff. And I, I often wonder. I'd love for you to speak to this. And this is a little sidebar here, but I often wonder how hard it must be for a dentist on the on a day in and day out basis, um, causing discomfort. And what kind of psychological struggle that must be. Um, you're, you're not really doing that. You're actually maybe a little, there's just a little discomfort, but not, nothing like a drill. I mean, you're, you're gluing stuff and tightening things, and it's a little uncomfortable after they leave your office, but it's not while they're sitting there. And I just, can you speak to that? Is that a real thing in the dentist Oh, absolutely. World? I mean, you know... I haven't seen it so much recently, but I know while I was in dental school and, you know, during my first decade of practice, you heard a lot about the the suicide rate of dentists um, being high. And you also hear that, you know, dentistry is one of the greatest, you know, occupations out there as rated by the general public. So where's the dichotomy? Like what's going on there? And I think what happens is in dentistry, you are attracting people by and large who have a very strong perfection tendency um, because we're dealing with things that most people don't even see. I mean, the specialty of orthodontics, the label it comes comes with is I, you know, I'm working within six millimeters, like Uh anything greater than six millimeters, I'm going to need more help like a surgical intervention or some type of, of, of difference. When you look at 
the crowns and the veneers and the bridges and the implants and all those restorations that general dentists do, success and failures is sometimes in less than a millimeter. And so when you're talking that kind of detail on a daily basis, um, what I've read, what I've listened to um, and talking to people is that kind of standard over the course of a career can wear on a person. And it wasn't that the person, you know, the people that I've, I've learned about, it wasn't that their patients weren't satisfied. It was what was within their heart they as the dentist weren't satisfied with the results that they were able to achieve. And that lack of perfection, that lack of that margin fitting, just like they wanted that wore on them over time. And so I, I think it's very true that dentistry is an amazing profession, but as you said, I don't have any friends that go, man, I am so excited. I get to get my teeth cleaned today. <laughs> or, I'm always I've afraid. Go. Every time they x-ray me, I'm like, holy crap, what's about to happen? I'm going to have exactly. to get some And with orthodontics, it's like we have that conversation one time. Here's what you need. Here's the plan. And then after that, it's about you know going through the process and – I mean, every patient that finishes orthodontics in my office or anywhere in the world walks out of the office with a ginormous smile on going, this is awesome. And it's, I mean, none of my friends who come out and go, man, I got a crown today, walk out of the office and go, that was awesome. Like, <laughs> No <laughs> <and> way in <so>, hell. <laughs> I want to live in the world of awesome. I love the positive feedback. Yeah. I love seeing a creation. As I tell people all the time. The two things people notice about you first are your eyes and your smile. I can't do anything about your eyes. I can do a whole lot about your smile. And that is a huge self-confidence piece. Yeah, if for people sure. are able to have the self-confidence of a smile, what does that transmit? And I think that's one of the biggest challenges we're facing right now in the world of COVID is with wearing masks, the only expression you're trying to discern from is eyeballs and eyebrows and foreheads. And it's hard to know what people are thinking or expressing when you cannot see their, their mouth, their cheekbones. Are they smiling? Are they frowning? Are they tense? Or, you know, you can't see any of that. And so it's hard to read all the body language that we've learn growing up and that we our bodies and our minds you know at a subconscious level pick up on it's not there right now hmm. and so you've got to ask a whole lot more questions to drill down and figure out what what's going on with the people that i care about yeah well good point well i've i've watched you from afar for a decade um building your practice and um and your approach to business um seems unconventional um, because I would say that many entrepreneurs, myself included, are constantly trying to figure out ways to grow, expand, uh, improve, uh, by improve revenue. I mean, just all these things. And I don't get the impression that you subscribe to that hard-nosed approach to business. Am I am I right? 
You're very correct. Walk me through, coach me through this because I'm, I consider myself in a way sort of this steely eyed bastard business guy. Uh, but I, you know, I have a heart and I'm nice. Um, as long as you're not my way. (laughs) So, so I I want, I want you to kind of, kind of help me understand your approach because you, you, you haven't expanded to, hire multiple doctors underneath you and all that stuff. Um, and I always wondered why. Well, I think the thing that is different is in your line of work, you're dealing with a commodity. Um, in my line of work, I'm dealing with the health of patients and the well-being of families. Mm. And so I have always looked at you and through our friendship, I think we both are in the same rowboat together. Mm. Um, We're just in different mission fields and Mm. mine is in orthodontics and yours is in mortgage and purchasing and selling homes. And, you know, you're changing lives and I'm changing lives. We're just doing it in two different venues. You're competing against other people for, the purchase of homes and reselling and Mm. you're trying to get a rate to help a person get into a house. And so you've got to put your muscle into that. I'm focused on trying to get people into optimal dental health at whatever stage they come into, come into my office at whatever age that is and put them in a position for long-term, not only dental health, but overall physical health for the rest of their lives. And so As a result of that, my focus during the day has got to be on the well-being of my patients and their families, more so than the financial aspect of what's going on within the business. Now, I spend a tremendous amount of time on that. I have a great team that helps me with that. But if I'm focused on the dollar first and the patient second, um, that's... I will never, ever, ever treat people the way they need to be treated. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's going at it a a different way. Um, As far as doing multi-doctor practices, it's very hard in an urban setting to do a multi-doctor practice because of the sheer volume of patients you've got to see, space that's required, the amount of staff that you need. Um, to make that go. What you typically see in multi-doctor practices is they have satellite offices in other areas and rarely are the two or three doctors under the same roof, but maybe just one day out of the week. And the rest of the time, they're out in different places because of the fact the big thing that people um, sometimes don't become aware of until you mention it is, is every orthodontist you know flips their entire practice every 24 months. Yeah, right. Like general dentist, you're with them, you know, from whatever age until you die or you decide to go somewhere else. Well, we're constantly completing patients. And so that turnover rate is high every month. And so you've got to have patients starting as you have patients finishing. Well, to do it on a volume, to do it as a two or three doctor practice is tough um, as I was saying. And so you don't typically see that in an urban setting. Now, all of my friends that practice in smaller towns, 
usually are in multi-doctor practices that have satellite offices so people aren't driving an hour and a half and two hours to get to an orthodontist. And so their business model is a little different that way. And I would love to have someone come along and, and join my practice at the right time. Uh, I also am realistic about bringing somebody in, how that, what you have to do to make the numbers work on the business side. Well, it, perhaps it, the, the next move, I, I, I'm guessing, might be exactly what Dr. Uh, O'Neill did with you, which is you're bringing in a younger guy one day um, to pass a baton. Is that on your radar? I mean, I'm looking at you. You've got quite a bit of gray hair. I do. I have more gray hair than you do. I mean, when we first met, neither one of us had any gray hair. Um, I, you know, uh, between an office full of women and four teenagers at home, I think I'm coming by it rather naturally. Uh, I think that, yes, I would love to transition this practice um, down the road, um, but I feel like I've got a, a big measure of time before I want to retire. Mm -hmm. I just... I love what I do. And as I, you know, when people ask me who don't know me and they say, you know, what do you do? I, I tell them um, I'm in full-time ministry as an orthodontist, which usually will spark a conversation. And so I know that right now my mission field is orthodontics and, mm -hmm. you know, my focus is, um, you know, creating beautiful smiles while investing in the lives of our patients and our community. And, I want that to continue beyond me down the road, but I'd love to do this for a long time. Um, I feel like I'm, you know, about halfway through my career um, yeah. and, you know, Lord willing and health wise, I'll, I'll hopefully be doing this another 20 years. It's interesting. Um, I hope I have the opportunity to retire yeah. when I want to retire um, into a different um a different opportunity to be invested in my community, invested in other people. Cause yeah. I mean, at some point you're not going to be doing what you're doing and I'm not going to be doing what I'm going to be doing, but we're not going to be sitting at home. Right. I mean, exactly. I, I will get invested somewhere else. Yeah. I, I've been thinking about that and just how, and I'm with you on that. I, I feel like I've got plenty of God willing. I've got plenty of energy um, and have no plan of slowing down until I'm forced to, for some reason, <laughs> um, because I just love it. I love it. I love what I do. And you obviously do too. Um, and it's just something that I, I just don't see. I don't see myself. I don't feel a need to, to move, move to something else. It's just so great. Um, well, in our, well, I think the sweet spot right now, Craig is, is that, at this point of our lives, we have the energy, as you said, but we have enough experience behind us to really make sound decisions for those that we're trying to impact on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the greatest things that was said to myself and my five other classmates when, when we graduated from orthodontic residency. One of our um, mentors and, and teachers said, you know, y'all are graduating with some of the best clinical knowledge in orthodontics of any residency program in the country. He goes, we've done everything to prepare you for going out. There's just one thing y'all are lacking. It's experience. Mm -hmm. 
And the only way you're going to get that is to get out there and, and do it and keep in touch with each other. And if something comes up, call us. Like we're here to help you. We're here to walk down that path with you. It's called a practice for a reason. It's not called perfection. Um, there's never been a perfect orthodontic case ever treated. There's, and so it's about getting better day in and day out. And I feel as though the that knowledge backing, I like the way you frame that. You're right. The knowledge to make good decisions to advance the cause overall. Um, because over time, through making all the mistakes or making most of the mistakes, making most of the big mistakes, the surprises start to decrease. The stress of the unknown begins to decrease. And your confidence to execute increases, which makes makes it more fun, <laughs> really. You know, yes. it takes forever, but it makes it more fun. It's a great way to put it. Well, in our pre-interview, um, you alluded to a window of time in your practice that was about 10 years ago um, when we had a recession. And I'd love for you to describe how you navigated that dip and what it was like for you. That was a, you know, that was a challenging time when you see things happening around you economically. And um, as you've mentioned, orthodontics being elective, people can say, hey, I'm going to wait to do that. We really kind of just hunkered in and said, okay, what can we control? We can control how we take care of patients and how we take care of families. And we're going to do the best we can through that. Um, that was also kind of concurrent with social media getting into starting to see that into dental practices. And I will tell you that first hit and that whole thing of posting and website and all of this, I really looked at it and I rebelled. I was like, this seems like a gargantuan waste of time. And that was when the wisdom of my wife stepped in and said, this gives you an opportunity to brand yourself to those outside of your practice and for people to get to know you and your heart outside of your practice. And so we took that opportunity to go, you know what, we're going to take care of, we're going to shore up some things within the practice and we're going to be prepared for when the economy starts improving for people to know who we are and what our practice philosophy is and how we want to take care of them and to attract families that would look at our practice and go, that's something I want to be a part of. How did you make that shift? I mean, the economy was um, in that, that recession time, it was just terrible. So revenue had to have decreased. How did you keep your chin up um, to focus on, the good times. I mean, that, that seems, you know, cause when you're in survival mode, I know for me, when I'm in survival mode, uh, especially financially, um, you know, it's hard to think really hard to think. How did you, you know, how did I, you overcome that? For me, um, you know, my faith is central to who I am and, um, you know, as I tell, as I tell people, um, I'm unapologetically in love with Jesus. And I think having 
a personal relationship, having friends who I could lean on, who could pray for me and could also give me wisdom into were my ideas as far as what I was doing, um, was I on the right path? And, you know, I had a real peace during that period of time. I didn't like the financial implications of what it was, how it affected um, myself and my family and our staff. But I knew that we would get through it. Um, You know, I leaned on Dr. O'Neill as far as what he had told me um, that of what happened to him during his practice is that you're going to hit times in your practice where the economy isn't strong. And so you've got to continue to, you know, press forward and, and keep the main thing, the main thing. And so I didn't take it personally. I mean, I, I knew it wasn't because people in Fort Worth didn't want to come see me. It was across the board. I mean, we had families that were moving out of town because they had lost jobs and they were having to relocate and they needed, you know, they were strapped financially too. We were all in the rowboat together. And so you just love people where they are, make sound decisions um, business-wise, shore up the things that you can, um, cut some costs where you can do that as well. And um, keep focused on taking care of people. I know that, you know, as things come around, um, you'll see the sun come up and you'll see new opportunities. So in your experience in that window of time where, you know, you were struggling, um, doing a lot of praying, I'm guessing, and um, and surrounding yourself with with uh, other people that are wise that can kind of hold you up. What lessons did you learn in that window of time that you are now applying? Um, I'm a, I'm guessing that that COVID is 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 punching you in the gut a little too, like it does many people. What lessons did you learn in the first recession that you've been applying to now? I think for, you know, within the practice of just keeping the model of not having debt and having, having savings for that rainy day and being able to, you know, take the profits that you have in your business and reinvest them back into the business and know that there's going to be times that you're going to have to, you're going to have to go into that savings to get you through where you are. And that really just reaffirmed that from a business model, um, I needed to make sure that I had um, cash available for those times. Um, And to also, you know, make sure that as we're making decisions, we're not taking on debt um, that could be a liability if things spin. I mean, I, I can tell you straight up, just like I've told patients, I mean, when the whole COVID thing got going, I would never would have dreamed I would have been, um, you know, mandated by the governor that I couldn't see patients for five weeks. Mm. Like never would have dreamed that would have happened in my practice, but thankful for the lessons I learned during the recession to prepare so that we could take that on and keep going. And, um, you know, you know, I applied also what I learned then was people want to know what your plan is. And we used the time of COVID and used social media to our advantage of making videos at my house or at the office. 
and just letting people know this is what we've this is what we know today. This is our plan. As it changes, we'll let you know. And I mean, it came down to Craig that we moved patients three separate times from when we were told by Governor Abbott's office that you can't see patients except for emergency patients until we got reopened again. And that date moved more than once. We rescheduled a whole practice three times. Mm. And so you just, once people knew that what the plan was and that we're available, I mean, you know, never loved, didn't know anything about Zoom. I think I got a master's degree of, in Zoom from the middle of March to the 1st of May, um, just because we were on it. And thank you, thankful for FaceTime and, uh, you know, just being able to see patients. And so we just, you know, I went to work every day during COVID, just like I normally did. We didn't have scheduled patients in the office. We took care of emergencies like we needed to, but we did virtual appointments for five weeks hmm. and checked in on folks and made sure things were going because, guess what? Those teeth don't go, oh, wow, it's COVID. We're not moving right now. Yeah. Teeth are still moving, COVID or no COVID. And so we kind of needed to know what was happening, especially with some of the, you know, there's a good portion of what we're doing orthodontically that is time sensitive. And yeah. so we didn't want to be putting patients, you know, causing more treatment down the road because we couldn't see them in a timely fashion. Mm. And so I, you know, went from not liking some of the technology things that were, that entered into the market, you know, in 2007, 8, 9, 10, to being very thankful that they were um, there, you know, at our disposable in 2020. Yes. And as I tell people all the time, and, and one of my classmates really resonated this with, with me, and I just appreciate Mark saying it. He goes, when you're doing branding, stay true to John Kelly and Kelly Orthodontics. And everything about your message is about what your practice motto is and you just stick with that and i learned that from you as well i mean i appreciated you sharing the pearl of storyboard and 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 being able to write down so that everybody on the team could see this is what we're about this mm -hmm. is why we're making this decision and here are the filters we're running through when we're making decisions decide are we going to do this or are we not does it fit the model of our practice. Um, and if it does, awesome, let's jump on that. If it doesn't, let somebody else take that on. I mean, I think where businesses get in trouble a lot of times is they try to take on and be more than they're supposed to be. Well, you've done a very good job of, of branding. I mean, your messaging is great. It's very positive. It's about the smile. It's about the outcome. Um, you're not, I mean, I, I really looked at your website from sort of a story brand point of view. Uh, and uh, Donald Miller is just brilliant and how he frames things. I just love his approach um, to branding. And, you know, cause I think, I think most, most people when they're building a website um, are doing any sort of flyer, they lead with, all the benefits. We're awesome. Dr. Kelly's awesome. He's went to school. He's board certified. You know, he knows how to put braces on. He knows how to do all this other stuff, but you shifted, um, to, to the outcome of the smile. And I think that's really cool. It's a, it's probably really helped 
frame who you really are to your customer. And I think that the the ability to express yourself through your website and through what you do social media wise allows people to see who you are and where your focus is. Mm -hmm. And I really do think it helps everybody. I don't Mm -hmm. think any of us are going to businesses, physicians, dentists, vets, whatever it be blindly now and just hoping it turns out. I think everybody kind of has a feel of what am I getting myself into? And I think it makes much better relationships when people know where your heart is before they ever start the journey with you. Um, it just, it catapults the relationship to a different level from the beginning. I mean, I had, um, I had a situation today where I was seeing, um, a patient who's uniquely enough, um, her grandmother is a part of our practice as well. And, um, the, the son came in and just said, you know, my mom wanted you to know and, and gave me some you know personal information about their family and just said she knew that y'all would pray about it. Hmm. And I mean, I, I don't know much higher compliment that I can receive than that, that they know that what's going on in their life is important to all of us. And that, yes, we will pray about that. Um, wow. Life is not easy. No. Um, especially right now in 2020. I don't think that's why none of us are going to shed a tear as 2020 ends. I I'm mean, it's telling like, you, man, I feel like I need to take a shower with a pressure washer to get this funk off my body. It's like, it's oh, so I'm so over it. I'm with you. Man. It is such the weirdest year in that regard. I mean, usually you come down to the end of the year and you're like, you looking back and going, man, I, I wish we could redo this part or that part, or that was a fun memory or we could do that family experience again. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. Um, now that can all go in. And, and real quickly, I have a sweet family who every year does a Christmas card. And I mean, a very involved Christmas card with a movie theme t- ter- typically. Okay. I mean, mom, dad, and son are all dressed up. I mean, it is a huge production. Well, this year they sent a <laughs> A picture, they're all dressed up, and there's a there's a dumpster there that says 2020 on it, and there's a huge fire raging out of that dumpster. <laughs> and we put it up. We have all laughed about it. Other <laughs> patients have looked at it and laughed about it. We're like, that is really kind of how everybody feels about 2020. Yeah, it was a dumpster fire. fire. <laughs> Entire fire. You know, thing. thankfully we made it through, but it took us working together to make mm-hmm. it through. I mean, yeah. I think every family can say they have leaned on others through this process to get, to get here. Yeah. Well, I, yes, I'm with you on that. And I want to get back to something real quick about, um, social media. Uh, you mentioned how thankful, um, you are for the ability to get the word out about your brand, who you are, get your message out. Um, And that's a double-edged sword. So what I mean is, is that it's real easy to, for you as the business owner and the owner of the practice um, and the guy at the helm to get that message out. But it's also really easy for the haters to come after you. Um, And what I mean by that is really, you know, Google reviews, 
um, I would imagine, uh, I, I mean, I, I can only imagine how, how much, I don't know. It would stress me out thinking about, you know, me being the doctor and then being attacked. Um, because I know you guys are really good at keeping people happy and keeping them smiling, but you can't do that a hundred percent of the time. So how, what are the particular steps that you take, um, for damage control when somebody blasts you? I'll pick up the phone and call them. I just think the personal touch, I think that's one of the things that's lost in our society at this point is, you know, voice prompts, leave a message, you know, I mean, can you even apply for a job anymore and talk to somebody? You've got to submit an application online and, you know, it just, it takes steps and steps to get to a person. And so I just call and ask, you know, is there something that I can do to help the situation? And, just open it up and see, you know, see how the person feels and see if we can come to a resolution of the situation. And thankfully that's, you know, that that'll happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there've been a few times that it hasn't Um, one that, that was probably the most challenging was I got a negative Google review on a patient who wasn't even my patient. I was taking care of a patient of one of my colleagues here in town that was out of town. And so I was taking his emergency call and I take care of this patient and coordinate appointments in the dentist's office because there were multiple things going on while he was out of town. And then she blasts me (laughs) on a Google review. And I'm like, are you really like, I mean, and, and went into the whole thing about the fact that I shouldn't have gotten paid for the emergency visit. And I mean, it was just, un, just one of those that you just looked at and you were like, are you serious? Couldn't get a hold of her. Cause you know, she wasn't my patient. So I just put a reply in. I'm, I'm thankful that Google review gives you a spot to type in a reply, whether it be positive or negative and just address the situation. Um, and it just is one of those that you just kind of chuckle. It was like, I did that on a weekend and during a week and got no financial recompensation for it and yeah. got a horrible Google review out of it. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that didn't exactly go as planned, but yeah. I just think that you have to look at that and go, okay, that's one patient over 21 years that has missed what we were trying to accomplish and mm-hmm. didn't value the steps that we took. And so, um, you know, at some point you just got to let that go. But I do think that as far as what, where you're, I think going with this is, is being accessible. I tell my staff all the time, if a parent has a concern or a question, stick a note, put it by my computer. I will call them in between patients or at the end of the day or during lunch and, and let's visit. And I also say that when families come to meet us for the very first time, I think it's extremely important that people understand the why behind what we're doing. And if they can understand the why the whole process is a whole lot more fun. Mm -hmm. And so as that gives them an open invitation, and I'm expecting you to ask questions. As mm-hmm. I tell people all the time, I would much rather you ask me than Google or your friends because mm-hmm. Google and your friends don't have your mouth and your treatment plan. Mm-hmm. So ask me, I will tell you why we're making those decisions. I want you to be informed. 
what you said earlier was so true is, I mean, you get x-rays done at the dental office and the big fear is, is there something there that I don't know about? And so if I can remove that and there is no fear of the unknown, then we can be conversing about what's going on in their life, what's going on in my life, and we can continue to grow together. It's that fear that gets in the way of so much stuff. And I just have found that through the years, calling patients and parents and just picking up the phone and saying, how can I help means all the difference in the world. And, you know, 99 point whatever percentage of the time it has remedied the situation. Excellent. Excellent. Excellent tip right there. Just pick up the dang phone. Um, And it's, uh, I think you're right that, you know, really in the last decade, picking up the phone is becoming much more difficult um, to do and less, um, almost less. I, I think it's a, I think it's appreciated. I really do. Um, and I think it's worth it. Uh, I, I don't think it's the, it's the natural knee jerk approach because the, the medium at which the, uh, the blasting comes from is written um, you know, writing it back seems the appropriate response, but you're saying making that call really diffuses quite a bit. And I think that's pretty cool. Really good, smart, smart, smart approach. Um, I want to, I've watched you engage with the community, uh, in a really profound way, um, ever since 2012 when, uh, live thankfully, was born. And it's just super impressive. What is Live Thankfully? Live Thankfully is what I call my accidental nonprofit. Um, Allison and I made a shift as a part of our branding after the recession and just said that we wanted to be more involved with our community. So we started Live Thankfully. And Live Thankfully empowers future leaders to be lifelong contributors in their communities while instilling dignity and pride in those that we serve. And let me unpack that. In 2012, I kind of looked at it and I said, you know, Dr. O'Neill had been giving out turkeys to referring dentists at Christmas time every year that I had been a part of the practice. And I continued that trend. And it was a wonderful thank you, but I had a pediatric dentist tell me, I really appreciate you doing this, but if you ever want to donate that to somebody in need, go for it. And that stuck in my brain for about, I'm wanting to say about a year. (laughs) And I don't need your turkey, (laughs) And I said, (laughs) why don't we give those turkeys to families that would be blessed by that and mm-hmm. that would enable them to have a Thanksgiving meal as a family mm-hmm. who otherwise would not. And so I just launched out and tried something new and called up the, you know, 60 people I was going to give turkeys to that year and said, Hey, I'm going to donate those to families in the three elementary schools around my practice. Are you okay with that? And they were all like, sure. So I took the 60 turkeys And then we said, well, you know what? We need more than a turkey for a Thanksgiving meal. We need the sides. And why don't we also give those families some groceries 
to help them during that week. Because as we all know, with Thanksgiving week, when parents aren't working, when kids are out of school, parents aren't necessarily working, they're having to take time off, that affects them as well. So we just reached out to the three elementary school counselors um, next to my practice and said, hey, we've got Thanksgiving meals that we would like to donate and some groceries to some families, but we want y'all to pick the families. Not necessarily based on financial need, mm. just on a way for them to to get some help through that season. We've had families where, you know, a, a family member was diagnosed with diabetes and or cancer, and their family life has changed dramatically, and they're coming upon Thanksgiving, and all of a sudden it's like, we're not going to be able to pull this off. Well, I wanted, and Allison wanted, people to be able to come together as a family and to share a meal. So, we just said, let's do this and we'll run, um, you know, food drives through those three schools. And mm -hmm. let's add a, the leadership component of teaching students how to run a canned food drive in their school or T-shirt sales without having the teachers or the counselor or the principal take on any more responsibility. Because there was this common conversation that we kept having within our office of, that we don't see the younger generation coming through serving like we all did and the generations previously, you know, during their teenage years. And we said, well, if we're going to expect a different product graduating from high school in Fort Worth, we're going to have to do something different to affect that. And so that's really kind of how Live Thankfully started in 2012 and three schools and, and so 60 turkeys. And how many turkeys did you give away in, uh, in 2019? 2019, we, we transitioned from turkeys to hams a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, and I think we did 800 turkey, 800 hams and Thanksgiving meals and roughly 35,000 pounds of groceries. <laughs> That's a logistical, uh, you're, you're a logistical master. <laughs> yeah. <it was> so <laughs> cool. That's amazing, man. Well, uh, thanks for sharing that. I just think that's impressive. We are, we're running up on, uh, the end of our conversation and want to let you get back to your patients. But before we do, I'd like to ask you a few fun rapid fire questions. Um, awesome. So what does the first hour of your day look like? First hour of my day is feeding my dog and taking her outside, eating breakfast, and either riding a bicycle or lifting weights. Lifting weights. Okay. What is the, what is the number one thief of your time? Probably worry or fear. Hmm. That's that's not what I expected. I figured you'd say uh, Instagram or something. Worry or fear? Worry or fear? That just—I mean—it just takes mental time. Yeah. To process through that and go, is that is there any truth to that? Do mm -hmm. I need to address that today? Or um, no, I'm not going to spend any time on that. Here's mm -hmm. what I need to stay focused on. Hmm. What about favorite book? What's the what? what books do you give away the most um to people that are um i will tell you one of the books that i like to share with friends and with patients there's a book called the boys in the boat 
And it is a true story about a young man growing up in the state of Washington and um, his journey through college and Hero's crew and just that whole experience. Um, the author really captures, I feel like, the stress and the strain of competing in a highly cardiovascular sport. I love it. Well, you, and, you're actually the second guest. So my um, uh, my friend John Pergandy with InsureZone yes. uh, was on the Yale rowing team. And that was his favorite book. So uh, I need to read that thing. That's awesome. You do need to read that thing. <laughs> it is an amazing um, – it's an amazing story and it um, it talks about all kinds of things beyond even if you don't, aren't interested in crew, it talks about us history. It talks about world war two. There's a lot that plays into that time period. So you have a lot of experience with um, likely mothers and children. Um, what in your opinion is the proper age to give a kid a cell phone? <laughs> I think that depends on the child. Um, you know, for our house, it's been closer, you know, it's been more around 13, 14, 15 years of age wow. um, that we've, we've done that. And I would, you know, one of the things I'd love to see if Apple ever called me up and said, can you make one improvement on the iPhone? I'd say, yes, let's do this. On that screen report that they send you on a weekly basis, as far as how much time you spend on the phone, I would love for them to break it down of how much time you spent talking on the phone versus how much time you spent on social media. Because right. I think that would be a great reminder for all of us that we need to spend more time talking and less time typing. Because we'll all say things typing, you know, that we wouldn't say if we were looking somebody eyeball to eyeball. And so, <laughs> but I do think it's, I think it looks, it depends on, you know, the child and the situation. I mean, some of our kids got, cell phones earlier than Allison and I had planned. But one mm. of ours got in a situation where he was running cross country in the morning at one school and then having to walk to the other school um, to start the day. Right. I mean, a different campus. And so you were like, well, that's not exactly great um, right. for him to be walking and have no way of getting in touch with somebody, especially with, you know, what if practice cancels? Right. One yeah. of the experiences we had. Get that boy a flip phone. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. So uh, what is your go-to protein source? Oh, my goodness. After a ride or in the evening? Either After one. a ride, I go, you know, I use a protein called Vega Sport Protein, mm -hmm. um, which I can just mix with some water, chug down and get in, you know, 25 plus grams and, and get on it. Um, favorite protein source in the evening. Um, I still love a good steak. Steak. I'm a steak guy too. Uh, marriage one liner to give a newlywed. This stumped you. Love deeply. Forgive often. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh man. Well, if I interviewed a bunch of your friends, uh, what would they say your superpower is? 
probably asking questions. That's for sure your superpower. <laughs> You're the most inquisitive person I've ever met. <laughs> for sure. That's what I would say. Is that guy can ask some questions, let me tell you. Well, well, and you know, as you can well imagine, yeah. I mean, especially growing up, high school and college friends didn't know exactly what to do with that and who would have guessed that something that I was teased about, you know, in college and that would end up being one of the most important things of what I do every day with the fact that I carry on a lot of one-way conversations when I've got things in people's mouths yeah. and I'm carrying conversations and, and, and learning. And there is no greater compliment, I think, to give a person than to ask them about themselves mm -hmm. and um, to give them an opportunity. And we really, and I don't know if you noticed this, Craig, but we really noticed this. 15 years ago, that as patients came into our office and a lot of our teenage patients, they didn't have a lot of adult conversation, right. a lot of just eyeball to eyeball. And right. so we've really focused in within our practice. We do have monitors in the treatment area, but I pick fun places in the world to look at, mm -hmm. especially this time of year, like right. snow skiing. Right. But we've never watched television in our practice other than like the Olympics or something special like that, mm -hmm. because I wanted the opportunity for young people and adults to know they're valuable and their story is valuable and what is going on in their world is important, not only to them, but to people like us um, who, who know them. And, and I love the fact that our patients give us an opportunity to know them at the heart level. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I really thank you for, your time uh, today. It was really fun. Do you have any parting words? Oh, I just want to thank you. I mean, for your listeners, um, I've known Craig in a very deep way for over a decade. I would think this would be one of the hardest interviews to do because you knew the answers to so many questions. Um, but I love the fact that you are taking the capacity with within your business to help others and to mentor. And I think that's one of the things that is so important for all of us that as we gain more experience in life, we need to be looking around to those around us and, and sharing that, sharing our experience. Um, as I tell people all the time that are, you know, new or younger orthodontists, the only difference between you and me is experience. And if I can help you not stub your toe or so to speak, I'm here to help you. I'm not one of those believers of since I went through it, you got to go through it. Right. Um, let's do this smart. Well, that's um, really, really kind of you. And that is the goal. That's exactly what I'm trying to do is, is pull together, uh, you know, the old guys and have conversations in front of the, the guys that are up and coming to, to help them, uh, build their businesses. Um, so man, I appreciate your time. Once again, John, we got to go. Appreciate your kind words, too. And uh, we'll talk soon. Well, folks, that wraps up our show for this week. If you found this interview helpful and would like to get pearls of wisdom that I've gathered along the way, go to TrueGritPodcast.com and subscribe to the True Grit blog. You will get short, helpful emails written by yours truly. Included in these posts, you will also get the show notes with links to books, articles, and other cool things I run across. Thanks as always for listening to the True Grit Podcast, where we believe that personal growth 
and helping each other solve important problems is the best way to make the world a better place. And don't forget, building a company and a life of meaning takes true grit. <laughs>